It's so good to be able to come together tonight to look out over the audience and to appreciate the desire and the love and the intensity that's in the heart of this group assembled to worship God in truth and in spirit. We're excited about the potential and the opportunities God gives us along this line. And tonight as we come together for this part of the worship, a study of a section of the New Testament. As you probably have noticed in the title, we'll cast a spotlight for the next few moments on two of the shorter books in all of the New Testament. Quite frankly, it's the two shortest books in all of the New Testament. Be turning in your Bible, if you would, to the books of 2nd and 3rd John for at least the next few moments. These introductory thoughts will prompt us to give some clear consideration to characters in those books. But there are five books in the whole Bible that have but one chapter. The book of Obadiah in the Old Testament, and the four New Testament books of Philemon, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. Tonight we're going to only look at the books of 2 and 3 John, and those are the two shortest of all five of them. In fact, as you begin to look at them, it's pretty easy to read both books in a matter of just a couple of moments at most. With that in mind, please note this. These books, although they're brief, the Holy Spirit saw fit to preserve them. They are inspired, and though so their messages are vital, they're essential, they're useful, and they're practical. In fact, many have looked upon these books and seen a remarkable and practical character to them to help each of us as Christians even today to understand the day-to-day ongoing relationships not only that we enjoy with God through Christ, but that we can even appreciate with one another. It is with that in mind I might invite you to notice The apostle of love named John wrote both of them. You'll notice that each one begins, the first two words of each book is the elder. John apparently was an aged man by the time he wrote these. Very far advanced in years and it was perhaps with an impressive amount of wisdom that he shared the contents of these, of course under inspiration as well. The key word, truth. Eleven times in two chapters, we find this word employed. It's almost as though John lifted so highly the banner of truth and not only the reality of its existence, but what it meant for the livelihood of those to whom he wrote. May I suggest to you that truth is still as vitally significant to all of us as it was to these individuals. One last thought. That truth... It's not just an artificial thing known in the mind. It's manifested by the ongoing daily way that they were to live, and that soul is true to you and me as well. It's one thing to know the truth, but it must manifest itself in what you and I do every day. The choices we make, the words we speak, the kinds of decisions we make, and so may that be a guide that helps us tonight as we give some thought to these two little one-chapter books. As we close that slide, may I suggest, let's use the following approach. We no doubt could devote hours, though that might not be the wisest approach for the night, but we could devote a lengthy amount of time to looking verse by verse and even phrase by phrase. Let's choose rather to look at the characters in these two books. That was the title I gave to the lesson. So why don't we look at the first character to be considered. Focus with me for a moment on the book of 2 John. The opening verse, as Brother Andrew read that a moment ago, read like this, The elder unto the elect lady and her children, 
And almost immediately to the forefront comes the realization that there was a woman, an elect lady, to whom John wrote this epistle. Perhaps that has offered itself a degree of some consideration. Let me try to share with you what I mean. As you and I read that in the King James translation, it just seems like a nondescript reference to some very special woman that John knew. It may well be a little deeper than that. The Greek word is the word kyria, K-Y-R-I-A, and there's a fair amount of evidence that that was actually a proper name for some women in the first century. It may well be that the explicit lady to whom John wrote her first name was Kyria, perhaps. Be that as it may, we can easily make conclusions as to these things. She was obviously called elect in the sense that she was a chosen person, a very highly respected person, a quite honored person. And what's more, you'll notice in verse number 13, she had a sister. So she, of course, was also part of a physical family. In verse number 1, she had children. We are not told more details about that. Surely that leads us to note the following. Verse number 1 is an exceedingly high compliment to this lady. Would you note it with me again? The elder unto the elected lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. Almost immediately, you and I can't help but be impressed with this lady named Kyria. We can't help but be admirable of her in that all of those that love the truth were respectful of her. She didn't live a life merely to please others. Her guide and her soul guide appears to have been the truth. And John highly complimented her for this. May I say, isn't that a set of words that should be descriptive of you and me? All of those that love the truth should have an appreciation and a love for that for which you and I stand. They should also be commendable and admirable of the decisions that we make. Is that true of your life and mine? Do those that love the truth love you? Or do those that love the truth have a question about you? Are they have in a position to have seen choices you've made that would seemingly bring doubts into their heart? This lady and her children were devoted to the truth. Among other things, don't we learn in this that there was a thing known as truth, and they, 20 centuries ago, were in a position to appreciate and follow it. That hasn't changed. Our Savior said in John 8, 32, Ye shall know the truth. Notice John says, They who knew it loved this lady. It is possible to know truth, right? Although there are many today who would lead us to believe that that's not the case. That truth rests no higher than the preferences or choices of each one. That simply isn't so. And the Lord Jesus Christ died on a cross forevermore with nails in His hands and feet to testify the fact there is truth religiously. And that truth will be ultimately those to who obey it will be saved thereby, but those who are disobedient to it will be condemned by it. This lady loved the truth. Look at some of these verses with me. The example that she set forth. Have you ever pondered what her children must have seen? As they grew up watching their mother devoted to the truth, you might note no reference to her husband is given. Had he died? We don't know. We aren't given any of those details. 
But we do know that this woman was such that she was attempting to rear her children so that they too would appreciate the truth and that they would be governed and that they would live by it. No finer example could any mother present, father either for that matter, than a hearty devotion to the truth so that the children who are reared in that household not only will understand the importance in a way that's seen on Sundays and Wednesdays, but that they will see it exemplified and manifested every day. It would seem this lady, by the verb tenses that John used, she felt that same way. Please note verse number 4. I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth, as we have received a commandment from the Father. Not only was the mother devoted to the truth, it was even exemplified and manifested in the lives of those children. We don't know how old they were. But already they had begun to present the truth and the choices thereof. And oh, how commendable that was. It was commented before our services began tonight. How that on the nightly news and in other places, we often see such choices that are made. Sometimes it's by youngsters who have very clearly chosen to walk down a path that's filled with doom and destruction and a path that's often hurtful not only to themselves, but to many others too. That wasn't said about this woman's children. They had been reared properly. A love for the truth was already appreciated in them, and oh, how sweet it is to think about that blessing still today. Perhaps a few final thoughts. What else did John particularly encourage in the life of this lady? May I ask you to note verse 9? Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that, teach, he that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. This lady was encouraged to safeguard the fellowship that she extended. If one come to you, and in that day when hospitality was, of course, presented by the individuals in, in homes personally, John says, don't you bid Godspeed to those who don't bring the doctrine vouchsafed in the Word of God. You can't offer them Godspeed. You can't present the blessing of God to them as if they're following the truth because they aren't. Wasn't that a reminder to this lady, Kyria, that she had an obligation to appreciate the sweetness that comes with Christian fellowship and that it isn't openly extended just to everybody, but it's to those that love the truth and to those who obey and follow it. No wonder in verse number 8 it says, Look to yourselves. This lady had an obligation. She had a responsibility. Look to yourselves. And surely how... Interesting it is to hear that same message today. When the day of judgment comes, you and I will be judged individually. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. Revelation twenty two twelve hearkens it in language like this, that we will be judged according to the deeds done in the body. No wonder in light of that, look to yourselves. You and I should look with care. Am I following the truth like she did? Like John, if John wrote you or me a letter today, could he write similar things to what he wrote to her? I trust that he can. I hope that he can. 
for myself and my family, I want him to be able to do that. But oh, what a challenge to each of us. Let's consider another person in these two little books. After we've considered the elect lady, why don't we come to 3 John for a moment. Consider Gaius. The opening verse of 3 John reads like this. The elder, and again that's John, unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. And already we begin to see one more reference to the truth. John loved this man in the truth. There are those in our day who would wish to find seemingly on nearly every page as much as possible of the Bible references to homosexuality. Could this be that John was having that kind of relationship with Gaius? Not at all. You'll notice it says he was well beloved and John loved him in the truth. And the word of God, the truth, condemns that choice of lifestyle. It doesn't lift it high. Both Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy chapter 1, all of them speak about the great love of God for individuals, but not that choice of lifestyle. Those who have chosen to live in a way that is in fact against nature, Romans 1, 26, that is directed in the way that will not bring the eternal reward of a home in heaven, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. Notice John loved this man Gaius in the truth. Isn't it a sweet thing to appreciate the fellowship that brothers and sisters in Christ have? You and I can come to a place like this one, and it's true we've gathered for worship, but the fellowship, the kind conversation that's enjoyed before and after services, the interest shown in the well-being and lives of others, it's a sweet thing to appreciate, isn't it? And yet the church is a body of believers. And from the very moment of its outset, that has been one of the blessings that's come along with it. No wonder Romans chapter 12 speaks on so many occasions about those that weep with those that weep. They rejoice with those that rejoice. They extend hospitality to those brothers and sisters in Christ. Because love is without dissimulation. That's a fancy word that means it's genuine. It's real. It is not merely a pretense. It's not a hypocritical manifestation. Surely in light of that, we come back to Gaius. Notice what else John was quick to comment about this gentleman. Beloved, verse 2, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee even as thou walkest in the truth. Did you note with me the truth was in Gaius? It's not merely something that was a belief. It was in him. His life exemplified and showed the fullness of it. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Gaius, it would seem, had extended frequent hospitality, not only to brethren, but even to strangers. He showed the real love of God for the human family. He assisted the propagation of the truth as he housed and perhaps took care of brethren and even to strangers. 
those who are in need of maybe a meal or a place to stay. The kindness that Gaius extended, you'll notice in verses 5 and 6, he had extended it faithfully. He did it in desire of presenting the truth. What about you and me today? Is it the motivation of the truth that leads us to choose to live how we do? One must be impressed with the sincerity, with the earnestness, and with a set of choices that Gaius had made. Verse number 7 says, "...because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles." Those first century preachers, may we remember, there weren't hotels everywhere to stay in. So as preachers would go about their efforts, like Paul and Silas and Timothy and others, it may well be that Gaius housed them, provided for them, took care of them, and made sure that they had the necessary matters so that they could devote their attention to the preaching of the gospel. You and I do that today as we support our missionaries, laboring perhaps in North Carolina, in India, other places around the globe, you'll notice that what a commendation was set forth for this man named Gaius. One more thing on the slide. You'll notice with me that this gentleman in verse number 8, it says, We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Gaius was described as one who was a helper to the truth. God is all-powerful. He is almighty. But you and I are privileged to serve in His army. And in that way, we also can be fellow helpers to the truth. Question, are you and I helpers of it, or are we just innocent bystanders passively watching it? To help means we actively assist. Are you and I doing it, or are we just spectators? There's no room in the kingdom of God for spectators. Those who just innocently watch from a distance and not actively participate. Are you and I participating like Gaius, like the elect lady? As we march forward, let's look at yet another person. Not only is Gaius an interesting person in this book, what about Diotrephes? I'm sure when the initial mention was made, maybe your mind raced immediately to Diotrephes. Let's read all that the New Testament has to say about him. Verse number 9 reads, I wrote unto the church. John had written a previous correspondence to the church in that locale. The New Testament has not seen fit to preserve it. The Holy Spirit didn't see fit to do that. But it says, Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Here was an individual in that congregation. His name was Diotrephes. You'll notice it says in that verse, he loved to have the preeminence. I've tried to describe it like this. The actual Greek language asserts that that has a meaning somewhat like this. He desired to lead or to be first. Now the text doesn't say that Diotrephes was an elder. It would seem here was a man in that congregation, but he wanted the glory and he wanted the preeminence and he wanted to be first. We aren't necessarily discussing matters of truth. When that's under discussion, God's way is always right and we aren't left much to discuss it. But what about matters of expedience? 
matters of choice. It would seem Diotrephes had to have his way. There was no room for discussion of other ideas, other opportunities or presentations. He wanted it to be done his way and no other. Let's see what John had to say about a man like that. Verse 10. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Here was a gentleman who had the nerve to think that he could determine who might or might not be members of that body. Remember, the Lord adds to the church, Acts 2.47, it isn't my decision. As long as a person meets the terms of requirements, Christ adds him or her to the church. But here was Diotrephes wanting to dictate who could and could not meet with those brethren. Did you notice some of the language? He used malicious words. Those are hurtful words, destructive words, terribly divisive words. It reminds us a little bit of the admonition that we read in 2 Thessalonians. To those who would use those kinds of words and those who would cause factions and divisions, Paul himself wrote and said, Remember that man, and after the second admonition, reject him. The church is to be a unified body of believers, and again, what a blessing. And when someone like this stirs up the brethren, trying to exalt himself above what would be a proper and appropriate manner according to the Word of God, John says, when I come. Verse number 10, I will remember his deeds. We don't know for sure that John made it to visit, but if he did... One can rest assured he had words of censure and words of rebuke and strong words of reprove toward this man named Diotrephes. As you and I come forward in that slide, is it not true we can at least contemplate the danger of that kind of attitude today? Here's a congregation, but there's a man in that congregation. The carpet's got to be the color he wants. The paint on the wall has to be the color he wants. The parking lot's got to be paved when exactly he wants, or he's upset and angry. And he takes it out on the brotherhood itself. That just ought not be. When it comes to matters of choice and things along that line, it is to be appreciated that one must not stir up the brethren. The church is to be appreciated as it endeavors to in fact dwell in the unity of the bond of peace, to quote Ephesians 4 verse 3. Aren't you thankful to be a part of a congregation that feels that way? And to have elders who in fact try to make sure that no one begins to feel as if a diatrophies is present? Maybe in light of that we close our slide and say this. In James 4 verse 6, and in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, there's a command, a very strong word given to all of us that humility and humbleness of mind are to be the order of the day as you and I strive to live by the truth and to walk, and to walk after it. Isn't it remarkable how often the Bible encourages humility? As you and I think about that, I suppose, since the Garden of Eden... There has been a tendency, and in fact a temptation from the devil, for the spirit of man to be lifted above that which it ought to be. The very words that David used in Psalm 131, verses 1 and 2. 
And so today, you and I must still try to repress that arrogant and prideful disposition of the heart and to never behave like Diotrephes. Look furthermore how verse 10 closes. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Standing opposite this man named Diotrephes, verse number 11 describes another person. It's a perfect time to at least in brief, in brevity, mention him as well. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. According to the wording of John, what Diotrephes was doing was evil. The choices he was making to stir up that congregation, to lead to the divisiveness and factions found therein, it was an evil thing according to the wording of John. But it goes on to say, He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. John uses a very poetic presentation, doesn't he? Those that choose to do evil haven't seen God. They don't appreciate that for which God would wish them to stand. And the foolishness of their choices highlights that their vision is poor. By vision, I mean spiritual vision. That takes us immediately to those famous words of Peter in 2 Peter 1, doesn't it? Beginning in verse 5, we read, Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. But then he says, But he that lacketh these things is blind, now, not physically blind. We each can see with our physical eyes. But Peter says the person who doesn't add these to his or her life is spiritually blind, failing to see the greatness of God, the grandeur that He would present to them. Today, you and I can still be spiritually blind, can't we? To walk away from the blessings of the truth, to choose to live in infamy. No wonder as we come to Demetrius, Look at how the next verse so richly, so beautifully, so wonderfully describes him. Demetrius hath good report of all men, and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. Whereas Diotrephes was such a poor example, look at how sweet Demetrius is described. He has a good report. What about you and me? Is our life an openly good report, one that might with sweetness be read, and a testimony found therein to the truth? For after all, verse 12 says, He has a good report of the truth. When the Word of God is opened and descriptions are found therein, your life and mine should be so positively described. It was Demetrius, but it was not Diotrephes. It would seem that as you look at some of those verses with me, there was something about Demetrius' name that was so very respected. We might pause and ask then about our names. Our parents bequeathed to each of us a name. And the way that we choose to live gives an impression to others as to that for which that name stands. Is it positive? Guided by the truth. Or again, is it questionable? A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor more than wisdom and gold. Those are the words of Proverbs 22, verse 1. 
they're echoed in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. One more time highlighting just how valuable a good name is. Demetrius had it. Diotrephes didn't. The time ought to come that you and I each, when our sojourn in this flesh is finished, to have others say he or she has a good name. They stood for the truth. What they said, you could count on it. And they were dedicated to that which they read in the Bible. Perhaps no better epitaph, no better description could be stated than that one. Nehemiah put it like this in Nehemiah 13 verse 31. Remember me, O my God, for good. As you and I close that slide, may you and I imitate the good like Demetrius did. One final person, and the lesson will be yours. What about the person that wrote these books? One by one, we've looked at Chiria and Demetrius and Diotrephes. We've looked at Gaius. But what about the gentleman that wrote them? We know well that he was an inspired man. We understand he was an apostle. John was privileged to see Jesus Christ. He was privileged as we read the gospel accounts. He was the one that is described as the one that Jesus loved. Now, Jesus loved all of them. Of course he did. But this man named John, as I commented earlier, he was well in years by the time he wrote this book. May you and I learn a rather innocent passing lesson there. Even in our elder years, we can still do good things for God. We can still be a powerful example of the truth by the way we choose to live. Our children, our grandchildren, maybe even our great-grandchildren will be impressed with those choices and maybe a lifelong impression has, will have been placed upon them. Not only that, note this, John had a keen interest in the individual well-being of these individuals to whom he wrote. Diotrephes, Demetrius, Gaius, Chiria. John was concerned about their souls. What about you and me? As a Christian, a Christian lady or man, are we also concerned with and desirous of the welfare of those precious souls around us? I know that we are, but I trust that we'll always allow those fires to burn brightly within us because after all, Jesus and the other New Testament individuals inform us of words like these, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? John was concerned about souls. May you and I be the, be the same way. Mark 8, verses 36 and 7. Two more lessons. We see how sweet it is to think about the congregations that were referred to indirectly in these two books. Chiria, the member of a congregation, although the name isn't given. Gaius and Demetrius, faithful members of a congregation. The name wasn't given to us. By the same token, Diotrephes was a meddling, troublesome member of some congregation there. Apparently, where Demetrius went. I wonder how many headaches Demetrius had trying to keep Diotrephes in order. And by the same token, what about the other people of that same church? Isn't it remarkable to think then about the sweetness of the membership that went with those? And one last thing. We find these references to an enthusiastic, vibrant, practical way of living as a Christian. Twenty centuries have now come and gone. 
But you and I know we still face challenges each day. These little books can still be so helpful to see the practical devotion to the truth and that ongoing livelihood in our physical families. Tonight, as we close this lesson, having looked at these characters, these few summary remarks, I believe, are in order. The truth has been a highlight to these two books. Aren't you thankful that as we sojourn in this life, there is something about which there is no doubt? Oh, the thoughts of men come and they go. The considerations of man rise and fall. But there is something that's uncompromisable in the sense that it must be followed. And if so, what a confidence and assurance it gives to life. We can leave this life ready to go on to a one far better. Tonight, if there's someone in the audience, and as you have thought about these characters, don't you want to be like Demetrius, Gaius, Kyria, or John? Don't we all want to avoid diatrophies? Tonight, if you need to become a Christian, the plan of salvation demands this of us. Believe in Jesus with all of your heart. Repent of your sins. Confess His great name as the Son of God and be baptized. If we could assist you in that tonight, we'd be honored to do it. If you have become a Christian, though, but you have perhaps fallen into the trap of making poor choices, maybe you haven't been a blessing to your brothers and sisters in Christ, but maybe you've actually been a bit of an impediment. Don't let that continue. For you see, you have been admonished in these books to be like these faithful brethren. And wouldn't you want to come back to your first love tonight? You see, coming back requires you repent of those sins if they're of a public character. Confess them before God and beseech faithful brethren to pray for you. We'd be happy to do that. Tonight, if anyone would like to come for one of those reasons or to request prayers of strength, we'd be so excited to in fact assist you however we can do it. At this moment, if there would be one or more that would wish to come, why not do it now while together we stand and while we sing?